Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Airbnb and New York. So, Richard, Airbnb, which is one of the most visible companies in the so-called sharing economy, they allow you to rent out rooms or entire apartments, houses, etc., and people can search for them and use them just like their hotel rooms. And that has put them on the wrong side of lawmakers in New York where Andrew Cuomo, the governor, just recently signed a law that allows fines for instances where that violates local laws. So that most saliently here includes New York City where it's been illegal for five or six years to rent out your apartment for under 30 days. With this law now, that's punishable by a fine of up to $7,500, and that's, that's just for listing the unit illegally. Now, there are a couple different avenues that we can explore here. I want to start with this one. One of the big complaints against Airbnb, especially in a place like New York, is that it exacerbates the problems with affordable housing because you have people using these units to generate revenue from tourists when otherwise – they might be on the market and lowering housing prices for the locals. That argument cut any ice with you? Well, they always cut ice to me, but you have to put it in perspective. Uh, they are going to be shifted away from those individuals who would like to rent those units to tourists. But the tourists, when they come, just don't sit in those units. What they do is they go out and they get all sorts of other kinds of opportunities. So they will essentially go to various bars, restaurants, games, and so forth, uh, which increases the economy and provides jobs for other individuals. And so in many places, what happens is it's a higher and better use of these properties to have them for tourist trades than you ought to have them in derelict condition for ordinary people. Now, the then question is, where do these people go? And for this, New York City has to blame itself. This is a city in which it is extremely difficult to expand the supply of housing because of the heavy restrictions that are imposed upon the way in which it's created. The zoning laws are quite a nightmare. In some neighborhoods, landmark preservation laws apply to districts, not just to houses. It turns out that the ORIP, the Uniform Land Use Review Process, is extremely onerous in New York City, and it's like a game of shooting ladders. If you get all the way up there to the last stage and then it turns out you mess up, you've got to start over again. So there's terrible problems in that way. The affordable housing mandates essentially are a system of price controls with respect to real estates that further dampen it. So the right response is to say, look, we've got this tremendous opportunity to get people into the city, and the way in which we handle the housing markets is to let them become markets instead of treating them under this particular kind of regime. And if you did that, then the total ban under these circumstances becomes ludicrous. Constitutional issue is tricky because most people believe, not me, but most people believe, and the current law says, that all of these other restrictions turn out to be absolutely fine, rent stabilization and so forth. And so there's no incentive on the part of New York City to do anything because the sitting incumbents who get all the advantages of the current zoning and rent stabilization laws are quite happy. So I think, in effect, what the Mayor Cuomo should do, Governor Cuomo should do, is change the basic laws and forget about this thing and then concentrate on much more restricted kinds of limitations that you might, under some circumstances, want to impose on Airbnb and its competitors. Richard, there's, there's sort of a complicating factor here when we talk about New York because so many of the units that are being discussed here are apartments. But let's put this in the context of 
of homes, homeowners. We were just before we taped the show, our producer was telling us he lives in a small resort town in California where they've just decided to kick Airbnb out. You basically you can't do rentals under 30 days. When you're in possession of the property, when it's your home as opposed to you just renting an apartment somewhere, what sort of legal protections are there for you to be able to use your house as you see fit, to be able to rent it out and make some money off of it? Well, this is actually something which is a very sore point. And if you start in California and think of the Ninth Circuit, the federal court that's operative there and the state court, uh, the protection would be regarded by most people as relatively minuscule. There is a key difference in these particular cases between two kinds of laws. One in which the government comes in and occupies all part of the particular premises in question. So what it does is it moves people into your house and says they've got to stay there. Everybody believes that under those circumstances, they have to pay you. But it is said to be a chasm rather than a difference if it turns out what the state does is it prohibits you, restricts you from using the products in certain ways. One of the ways you could restrict it is to say that you cannot use it for rental property, but you may still use it for residential property. And if you look at some of the laws in California that have been sustained, for example, if you want in some of these resort towns to take um, a recreational vehicle and throw it off your land in order to put something else up, you huge amounts of compensation. You've got to go through an enormous zoning process under the situation so that essentially only in one case in a million will somebody actually go through that. And the Ninth Circuit and the California courts have all held this to be hunky-dory. So under the current law, it seems to me that it's likely that this thing would be upheld. Uh, But this is a big enough issue and a novel enough issue that the question is what happens when it goes to the Supreme Court. And there, if you had the conservative five, I think that they would start to argue that the total prohibition against alienation done for purely anti-competitive reasons, if that's the way the record starts to develop, would in fact be an arbitrary limitation on the use of property. And it may not be a taking, but it's a violation of the so-called due process clause, and they might strike it down. Um, This issue has come up many times in other contexts, and I think the trend 25 years ago when you were in the middle of the Reagan revolution was that, yes, you know, we're going to give increased protection to property. Uh, The more recent courts, I think, have gone pretty much in the other way. So if I were a betting man, I would assume that the uh, rules that you have in these small towns would probably hold up against constitutional challenges or only would fall from an enormous fight. Uh, And so I am relatively pessimistic about this, but I also want to say I think it's completely inexcusable. If you want to do something like this, there are reasons to be uneasy. Um, If it turns out you think you're only going to rent property to felons or to miscreants or to teenagers that make noise, I understand what's going on. Um, I live in a small community in Michigan in the summer, and uh, one of the huge issues there was can you have rental properties for weekends only when it turns out seven fraternity guys are going to come in and raise cane, and they were absolutely split down the middle. Some people saying you ought to have narrow restrictions, others saying nothing narrow will do, and it led to a real blood bath inside the community in terms of the way in which this thing was resolved. So I don't think it's going to be an easy road. And I think that the guys who passed this thing probably checked with their land use attorneys and came up with the conclusion that it would pass muster. If they try to raise it beyond 30 days, who knows what would happen. But they understand perfectly well, why take the extra risks when with 30 days on the market, you knock out 90% of the trade. Let me pinball you back to the apartment question for a moment because another argument that emerges in the New York context is that 
people who live in these apartment complexes who occupy their units, who don't sublet them through an Airbnb, that they signed up to live in an apartment, not a hotel. How much of a claim can another tenant press about the fact that you're going to have all these strange people trafficking in and out of a building that you wouldn't if they were all renter-occupied? I think that's an absolutely legitimate issue, but the question is who ought to address it. Uh, So if you are a developer and you put up one of these kinds of things, it seems to me that you can have in your leases prohibitions against renting out for short days, and then it's a contractual restriction that everybody understands, and it's like any other other restriction imposed by a landlord. Since everybody is bound and benefited by it, you have notice in advance, and if you want to be in the sublet business, you move somewhere else. When the state comes in and does this and the landlord is willing to permit it, then that seems to me to be an entirely different situation. So the battle that you then have to argue about in virtually all of these cases is exactly which way you think this particular thing is going to go. Uh, Do you think that most landlords would prohibit, or do you think that most landlords would permit this? And my guess is it will vary all over the lot depending on the configuration, the entryways, the size of the units, the composition of the population, whether it's a rent-stabilized unit or not. And I would be wanting to separate, delegate this down. Um, but I don't think, in effect, there's a justification for state regulation. What I think it is is the justification for a clarification of the law that the landlord can impose reasonable constraints on these things, particularly at the onset of new leases. So no surprise here, but some of the biggest supporters of these tough new penalties in New York were hotels that were seeing their bottom lines undercut. And this is this is sort of an issue we see everywhere. It happens with the owners of taxi medallions when Uber comes to town. Um, if you want to cast it more broadly, we always have arguments over what kind of compensation people should get if their jobs are displaced by international trade. Just broadly speaking, Richard, from a classical liberal perspective, what role is there for government, if any, to compensate market incumbents who get displaced when you have a big economic or technological shift like this? Well, the answer is unless they're doing something illicit, if it's a better product at a lower price, um, you never want to engage in economic protectionism, either in international trade or in local affairs. And so what happens is if you put the Airbnb in there, the uh, landlords and the hotels that operate are going to adapt their behaviors. They'll probably lower their rents to some extent in order to compete. Some of them may go out of business and and turn to other kinds of uses. So I think if you start putting this kind of protectionism in there, what it does is it freezes in an inefficient system of development when what you want to do is, in fact, to have people exit the industry if it turns out the kinds of services they're supplying are not any good. So we don't want to protect the guys who make um, iron wheels for horseless carriages uh, from the automobiles. We don't want to make sure that the trains are protected from airplanes and so forth. So the protectionist argument should always fall on negative ears because the harm that takes place to the disaffected industry is inversely related to the social benefit. They lose because consumers gain more because what has happened in effect is the moment they're seeking protectionism, they're seeking monopoly profits of one form or another and the new entrant is designed to dissipate those things away. Uh, This is one of the strongest arguments for free trade If you've got yourself a very inefficient system, say a lot of job restrictions and a lot of strong unions, you open up the barriers to people coming in from the outside. Those restrictions will start to crumble. Those unions will start to get weaker and the system overall will be better than it is. So I think generally speaking, from my point of view, I take the 19th and early 20th century view. Anything which is a quote-unquote labor statute, which is intended to stifle competition in the absence of fraud, in the absence of nuisance, in the absence of monopoly, uh, should in effect be regarded as per se illegal.
Earlier in the conversation, you mentioned the role of zoning. Uh, some of your fellow libertarians really despise zoning, and, and their counterexample is usually Houston, which is, I think, the fifth biggest metro area in the country. It officially doesn't have zoning, although that's a, in reality something of an overstatement. They do have some restrictions. But do you do you have that same aversion to the practice that some libertarians do? I think you have to be more careful, and let me explain why I differ from that. A zoning system to a libertarian is a bad thing because you restrict property rights. And generally speaking, they're deeply suspicious of any argument which said that the party that is subject to regulation has received just compensation from it. Uh, But there are sentences and situations in which you need a zoning law because it does meet the just compensation requirement in the following way. You have a large number of people on a public street, and it turns out that what you'd like to do is to have signs that are backed against the walls so that everybody can see everything and remove some visual clutter. There's no way you can do this by covenants, but if you put it in as a law that says everybody has to have sign which meets these kinds of regulations, and then you discover that the properties of all the owners in question increase in value, there's no reason whatsoever to think of just compensation as a requirement. So I'm willing to look at the implicit in-kind compensation. The usual requirement to make that go is the law has to be neutral on its face and cannot be disparate with respect to its impact. Very few laws meet that, but there are some that do. And so, for example, to give you another illustration, if you're trying to build a seawall to prevent properties from being blown up or eroded away, and you basically tax everybody to build it up and down the beach, um, you could not do that privately because one holdout and the whole thing falls apart. And so if you tax them for the wall and the wall increases the net value of their property, it should be fine. So I'm willing to allow forced exchanges. And if you're willing to allow them, then you're going to ask the question, what kind of effect do you have? And if you look at the zoning laws that you're talking about in New York State, it's always the same story. We're stopping people on one side of the street from putting in um, supermarkets because the competitor on the other side of the street has them. One guy's value goes up by X dollars, the other goes down by 2X dollars. That's the kind of thing in which you don't have the parity principle and you don't have the just compensation, so you don't want to allow it. So I think you have to be much more careful about the way in which you look at it instead of just simply denouncing all zoning law that makes you, for one thing, too big a target for people on the left who say, look at all these sensible zoning rules and you're just doctrinaire and you don't want to look at their impact when you strike them down. So the last issue that I'll raise with you today, this plays a little bit of a role in the Airbnb controversy, a little bit in zoning, but this is sort of a broader housing controversy. You see it most acutely in the debates about gentrification. It's people talking about wanting to preserve the character of their neighborhood. That's a slippery concept to be sure, but how much legal leeway should there be for residents of a community to be able to resist the changes that they don't like? Well, I mean, what they mean by character, for the most part, is that they get to stay there when everybody else turns to get out. So (laughs) let me just give you the sort of the New York City kind of version of this. What you do is you have a neighborhood, say that it's an Italian neighborhood, and Chinese people live there, and the question is where the boundary line is going to be. Now, ethnic homogeneity is a characteristic of neighborhoods, and so you may see one population expand and one not. One of the things that happens in New York City is the landmark preservation laws can apply to blank properties 
of land empty and so forth. Saying, well, it's part of a distance, and so what we have to do is to make sure it's consistent with the character, and the incumbent group essentially gets to keep the other group out. I think that's terrible. But if, on the other hand, what character is about is what you have in Jerusalem, where all the buildings have essentially made out of Jerusalem stone, and it gives you this very impressive facade, I think you can say, we don't want one guy coming here and putting in some bright green tiles and neon lights which destroy the character of the neighborhood. So it's the same test. Do you have a situation where the regulation to preserve character raises all buildings in roughly proportionate sense, or is this just an exclusionary effort? And I've given you one example where it's clearly abusive and another example where it seems to me to make sense. Most of the people who talk about character, what they mean in effect is, I don't want to ever have to move out. I don't want the person next door to raise the rents and so forth. So what you want tenants to do, what tenants want to do is to make sure that landlords won't rent to somebody else and either increase the value value of their property and satisfy other customers or rip the thing down and put up a bigger building. Uh, you will get complete stagnation if, in fact, you allow these character arguments of that generality to be a veto on every form of development in a city. New York became great. New York got its landmark buildings precisely because it did not have a landmark preservation law. All right. Thank you, Richard. And thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.